Well, I'm so excited about preaching today that we're going to dive right into the sermon right now. But here's a question I want to ask first. Maybe you're asking, maybe you're not. At least I'm, I've asked it. Why am I preaching today? October 1st, 2021. Why am I preaching today? Now, that is a fair question if you read our emails each week all the way to the bottom. Because until recently, our weekly emails had a different name listed at the bottom of our emails at our sermon calendar where we list the upcoming texts and upcoming preachers. My name was not on there. This text was not on there. And so why am I preaching today? Well, one reason is that I'm not having surgery. Many of you have been praying for me. I'm not having a second surgery. And so I just changed the calendar and put myself in because I wanted to preach. But there's even more than that. Truth be told, it's been a really hard month or maybe even a hard 18 months. And in the last three weeks, I hit uh, a wall of exhaustion Maybe it's the 13 years of laboring here to, to plant and lead this church. Maybe it's the countless surgeries and medical procedures on my arms. Maybe it's the, the burden of sitting with those who are suffering and those who are struggling with sin. Maybe it's all the above and even more. Either way, I feel like I've lost my powers. Have you ever felt that way? This is the way Gloria and I talk about it in our home. She lost her powers in the beginning of the pandemic. And I think I lost my powers about nine days ago on Wednesday, September 21st, 2021. Our 19th wedding anniversary. It was about 5 p.m. and I'm sitting there right in front of my computer and I lost my powers. All I wanted to do in that moment was to take a very long nap. Well, the proof of my power outage came just a couple days later on Friday last week in Ras Al-Khaimah. Seven elders, seven of our pastors all had a role in the service, but not me. I just sat like the rest of you just participating in the service. But even then I came into the car there in Ras Al-Khaimah after the service and I basically just collapsed and went to sleep in my seat in the car. Now, thankfully, it was in the passenger seat and not the driver's seat. So you need not worry, but I basically passed out, slept the way home. Perhaps you've lost your powers at some point, low on resources. Maybe you felt weak. This pandemic has brought each of us to our knees in some way at some point. It certainly has for our church. Our church has been operating in weakness for some time. I mean, just consider a few areas. One, our meeting location. Last week, we were in Ras Al-Khaimah. The week before that, we were here at the Crown Plaza. Before that, at the Movenpick for a few weeks. Before that, in Ras Al-Khaimah for five months there, an hour uh, away. Before that, um, nowhere for two months. Before that, the Movenpick for a couple of months. Then before that, nowhere for eight and a half months. And that wasn't new to us. The pandemic uh, wasn't new to us in terms of meeting facility issues. Even before that, we had all kinds of struggles. Over the years, we've bounced around. It now feels like ages ago that we were meeting at times in the evening at Jumeirah Creekside Hotel. Do you remember those? 4 p.m., 7 p.m. Feels like so long ago. And who could forget, if you've been here for a while, our longtime hotel, which as you would have it, the Marriott right around the corner, shut down with 10 days notice to us and everyone else. We're also weak because of leadership transitions. Of note, Craig and Julie Plum to Thailand, Pastor Benoit and Jay-Z Samuel to Cochin, Pastor Butch and his wife, Prossy, founding members. Butch was an elder just transitioning to the U.S. Ross and Bambi making plans to start their ministry, Steadfast Love Incorporated, out in the Philippines. And in our members meeting, we announced Joshua and Ashley Dean heading off to Kuwait to be a part of starting the church plant there. We're weak because of transitions. And I can go on and on and name more and more members and leaders. We're also weak because... As a people, we're hurting. 
Many have lost loved ones during COVID. The list is so long. You might remember that day where I, I listed and then prayed for all that I knew and it went on and on and on. Some of us have battled COVID ourselves, some in the hospital for a week, two weeks, over a month. Others have taken pay cuts or lost jobs. And if not, Pastor Scott sent me a stat last night that said 88% of the workforce is stressed and 50% would like to change jobs, ASAP. We're also weak because many of us have fallen into sin these days. And none of this mentioned so far involves our normal pain. I mean, we're, think about it. We're a weak church led by a weak pastor who can't even get dressed on his own or brush his teeth without help. Redeemer Church, we're weak. We're a weak people, and so it's a perfect time to welcome Pastor Sam Alberry next week to preach those two sermons from 2 Corinthians 12, those most glorious verses, some of my most favorite verses in all the New Testament. I hope you read it in preparation for the next two weeks, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, in a sermon series entitled, Weakness is Strength. We, we need that because we are a weak church and we are a weak people. We know in our heads the truth, don't we? We know in our heads the weakness is the way. We know it in our heads. We see it in the Bible. I say it often from the front that weakness is the way so that God gets all the glory. We know these truths in our heads, but what happens when that truth doesn't travel down from our head down into our heart? Well, this was the case for me over these past weeks. I needed help. I needed perspective. And Psalm 73 was my help. Now, how I got to the passage, I wouldn't recommend to anybody. Okay. We may joke about those people who, when they need a word from the Lord, they come to the Bible with what I've named as the popcorn Bible reading plan. Okay. Uh, you've probably used a reading plan before. There's some good ones out there. The, the McShane reading plan or the ESV Bible reading plan. It's a, it's a plan that takes you consecutive through various books of the Bible. Maybe you read a chapter of the New Testament, a Psalm, the Old Testament. Maybe you read chrono chronologically, but you go through books of the Bible and you're reading them from Genesis to Revelation. I highly recommend those. I don't recommend the popcorn Bible reading plan. It's an unofficial plan. You won't find it anywhere. Think about popcorn. When you make popcorn, each kernel shoots off into a different direction. You don't know where it will land. You don't know which one will open up next. Similarly, in the popcorn plan, here's what you do is you take your Bible off the shelf. First, you, you dust it off just a little bit to get the dust off and you, you open it up and then you close your eyes really, really, really tight and you flip back and forth, back and forth. And you do that for a while until you're feeling really, really good. Eyes still closed. And then you take your finger, boom. And, and, and that's God's word for you that day. It's your special verse and you read it and that is supposed to encourage you. You're ready to name it and claim it your personal verse for your devotional time. But we know this hardly works, does it? Because what will inevitably happen? Well, on occasion during the popcorn reading plan, you will land on 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, which says, as Elisha was going to Bethel, some small boys came from the city and mocked him and said, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. So he turned around and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came up and ate 42 young boys. Period. Now, I'm sure there's a context to that verse, right? I'm sure there's more to it in 2 Kings chapter 2. There's got to be more to the story. So church, it's always good to read the whole context. It's always good to read through chapters of the Bible, to read through books of the Bible, to see the whole storyline of the Bible, to see the arch from Genesis on to Revelation. That's called biblical theology. And we want to know what the Bible has to say. But with just one verse, with popcorn Bible reading plan, you read that and you say, what is God asking me to do here? To, to shave my head? To not shave my head? To tell others to shave their heads? Should I be afraid of female bears? Are they coming to get me? Will they eat my boys? That can't be it. 
And so you're utterly confused. You do it again. You do the whole, close your eyes. You're going to find another verse. There's got to be another verse out there. And you land in the book of Deuteronomy, which you know is probably a mistake. Chapter 28, verse 27. And it reads, May the Lord strike you with boils and with tumors, scabs, and itch for which you will find no cure. You're thinking, no, Lord, no, I don't want boils. I don't want scabs. Take back, take backs. (laughs) But no take backs in the popcorn Bible reading plan. No, the whole popcorn thing was a bad idea after all. Well, I have to confess something. I played a game of popcorn Bible three weeks ago, but this time I landed on Psalm 73. True story. And I've been reading it every morning for at least the last 20 days. And I promise in this text, there are no boys, no bears, no boils or bald people in the passage. Nothing, none at all. But here we are today, Psalm 73, a pastor's heart. That's how we got here. I've titled the sermon this way uh, for three reasons. One, first, God has been working on my own heart through this text. Second, the truths of this passage reveal my heart for you, the congregation. And number three, Asaph, the author, was in essence a worship pastor of sorts, and he shares his heart with us. So a pastor's heart. This title, in this case, is not the main point of the passage. So let me give you the overarching main point before our outline. You don't have to write this down. I'll go over it a couple times. You'll see it on the screens. I just want you to hear it. I want you to see where the psalmist is going. I want you to have this in your mind as we go. So here's the main point. Our envy of the prosperity of the wicked leaves us in despair until we gain a proper perspective on life by seeking God among the assembly of believers where we're reminded of the justice and goodness of God. Let me just repeat that again, just to give you a moment, just to take time to to think about it and to have this in your hearts. Our envy of the prosperity of the wicked leaves us in despair until until we gain a proper perspective on life by seeking God among the assembly of believers where we're reminded of the justice and the goodness of God. So that's the overarching main point today. And then here's our outline. Here's how we're going to see that fleshed out. We'll see it in three movements, three points. Number one, envy. Here you can write these down. This will help you if you're taking notes. Number one, envy. Number two, justice. And then number three, we can't forget about number three, hope. Envy, justice, and hope. Well, let's start with envy. Well, before we get to verse one, really we look at a verse zero of sorts. If you've opened your Bibles, you'll see a note at the top there above verse one that this is a Psalm of Asaph. We know King David, he wrote 73 Psalms. We have several uh, that penned a Psalm or two. 12 are written by the sons of Korah. They're a Levitical family and descendants of the rebel leader Korah. Some of his family became singers and musicians in David's temple choir. Asaph was likely the director of a choir or worship leader. He writes 12 Psalms himself. So Psalm 50 and then Psalms 73 straight on through Psalm 83. Those are the Psalms of Asaph. Most of them can be classified as wisdom Psalms, but we'll also notice there's a twinge of lament. You'll see quite a bit of it in our Psalm today. One thing is for certain is that Asaph is brutally honest in this psalm, raw with emotions, real about the darkness of his own heart. But that starts in verse 2. Not knowing that, we're a bit surprised by verse 1. Look at that. Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's the truth that begins the psalm. And it's also the truth that ends the psalm. 
God is good to those who are pure in heart. That doesn't mean those who are perfect. It means those who are loyal to God, those who are committed to him, those who are believers, those who are saved, those who are God's followers. <clears throat> this is an inclusio. It's a literary device. And inclusio is where you start with the passage of literature and the beginning and the end say the same thing. And it's to point out something that that's an important part of the meaning of the whole psalm. And here the text begins and it ends with the same truth, drawing us to that main theme of God's goodness. But between these two bookends... We see a roller coaster ride of emotions. You may have studied this with your community group this past week and noticed this. While Asaph knows the truth, while Asaph is a worship leader, he's going to wrestle with it. It's another reminder for us that none of us are immune to these struggles. No member, no deacon, no leader, no elder is free from occasions when the truths about God from the, in, in the mind get stuck in traffic as they're traveling down to the heart. Now, all of us can be like Asaph, verse 2. But as for me, says Asaph, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph shares the truth, and then he enters into this crisis of faith. Yes, God is good. Yes, God is good. But for me, I nearly slipped. Now, it reminds me of watching ice skating. Have any of you stopped for even just a moment at the Dubai Mall to watch the ice skaters skate? Well, I can't skate myself, but my family has gone skating a couple of times. And so what I've done is I've just taken one of those seats behind the glass and I've just taken in the atmosphere of these ice skaters. And it's interesting because you have some amazing skaters, right? They're there in the middle of the ice. They're doing twists and turns and spinny things or, or whatever they're called. And it's quite mesmerizing. And then there's everybody else. They're the ones skating in circles, circle after circle after circle around the true ice skaters. Some are trekking along okay, but others, let me just be honest, they have no idea what they're doing. And they're the most fun to watch. <laughs> the ones too prideful to pay a few extra dirhams to skate with one of those big penguins. And so they pass on the penguin and they think they can skate because it can't be that hard. And so what happens for a whole hour? Well, they stumble at every curve, crashing into the wall over and over and over again, holding on for dear life. And I'm thinking the whole time, that doesn't look like fun, but they keep going. And the psalmist says here, his feet had almost stumbled. They'd almost stumbled. He's, he's, he hasn't fallen, but he feels like that ice skater. He looks like that ice skater who's slipping, who's slipping, who at the last second either grabs onto the wall or someone grabs on to them. Well, in verse three, we see why the psalmist was almost slipping. He gives us the reason. He's so honest. He says, for, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For, because, here's the reason, I was slipping because I was looking at the arrogant and I was envious of them. I opened my eyes and I saw the prosperous ways of the wicked. Now here's the question Asaph was wrestling with. Why do the wicked prosper when so many of God's people are suffering great pain. I think today, maybe he would look at Afghanistan and wonder, why are Christians being persecuted? Why are they hurting while the wicked rule? Well, the psalmist admits his envy of the wicked. Well, what is envy anyway? Well, a short definition, it's a longing. It's a desire for someone else's possessions or life. 
And the psalmist here is confessing his envy. He's confessing he desires what the wicked have. He confesses his, his jealousy and the resulting despair. The wicked seem to be winning. They seem to be doing well. Now, I remember years ago, one of our former elders, Frank Sampson, uh, now at Covenant Hope, uh, was cheated by a business partner. Frank is one of the godliest men I know. He loves Jesus. He's tender-hearted and humble and gracious a wonderful man of God who served this church with his whole heart. And a wicked man stole from him. And all of us as elders, we were, we were angry with this thief. We wanted justice for our brother. But Pastor Frank was so patient and so godly. He wasn't going after revenge and wouldn't do anything that would compromise his integrity, even for justice. Instead, he went after love. And for Pastor Frank, it resulted in great loss. In his case, love didn't win. There was no happy ending to Pastor Frank's story. The wicked prospered. Well, maybe this is how you feel today. You're walking with Jesus. You're serving the church. You're fighting sin, but none of your prayers are being answered. You want to get married, but nothing. And you look and you look and you see others compromising and they're getting married, and they seem happy. You work a long week, you're underpaid in a challenging environment, while a godless man or a godless woman, they get that dream job that you've always wanted. Or you go on social media, and you see uh, your mean boss who has made your life miserable on a posting spree of their holiday to the Maldives, and you haven't traveled anywhere for years. What's your first thought? Oh, wow. Praise God. They've been able to go to the Maldives and sit on the beach and sip on their fresh squeezed orange juice, lying in a hammock, just relaxing. No, of course you're not thinking that. What are you thinking? You're thinking, I want to be there. Why do they get to go to the Maldives? Where's my Maldives hammock? I've never had a hammock before, or maybe like me this week. Or actually, two weeks ago, I've shared with many of you before my dream to throw a baseball with my kids, to, to play catch with my kids, to have the strength and the healing to play with my kids. Well, a couple of weeks ago at a baseball practice, I was talking with a father and it's clear he's not a Christ follower. It's clear that he doesn't think much uh, good about Jesus. Uh, but as we were talking in a moment, the coach needed a volunteer to help with the practice. And so this man, this able-bodied man went and to, went to go help while I sat there watching this man play with my boys. And I thought to myself, why, Lord? I mean, why him? Why not me? This is essentially what Asaph is asking here. And the next verse gives a summary of the wicked people Asaph is envying. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. The word pangs is literally the word chains. Maybe a metaphor for describing the chain of physical pain. They don't have that. They are strong. They are free. Nothing holds them back until death. Not only that, they're fat. They are fat. And that's a good thing. In this culture, they had the best food. They had lots of it. Their fatness was a sign of their prosperity. They had it all. Verse 5, no trouble. They were living their best life now. All seems good. Verse 6, therefore, pride is their next Reckless violence covers them like a garment. Now, necklaces are normally beautiful, especially the gold ones. And if you haven't yet been down to the gold souk in Dara, maybe you're new to the UAE, you should go sometime and you'll be just like the rest of us on our first trip, taking pictures of all the gold there. And you'll be specifically infatuated with the gold necklaces because they're not so much gold necklaces. They're more, more like gold vests or gold blouses, aren't they? These huge gold chest plates, these huge gold dresses, they're incredible. And combined with violence here, though, this is what the wicked looked like, but they weren't covered in gold. They were covered in violence. They were covered in pride. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through the fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're fat, yes, 
but through the fat, their eyes actually stand out. It means that they sparkled. They, there's a twinkle in their eyes. All that they wanted, they have. They have it all. Sure, their hearts overflow with follies, but who cares? It's all fun for them. Verses eight and nine, their words are against God. It's not just what they do, but they actually speak up against God. Verse 10, therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, they're so alluring, people are being drawn in. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? It's unclear who's speaking here, but it's most likely a boast of the arrogant that there is no infinite God. And then in verse 12, Asaph summarizes all that he said about the wicked, all these 10 verses here, Asaph brings everything to a crescendo. Here is the final summary, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Here's who they are, always at ease. Not only that, they increase in riches. They have an easy life and it gets better and better and better. It's not one trip to the Maldives, it's 10. And then his own and wrong conclusion because of all this, verse 13. Uh, because the unrighteous have it all, because they're doing well. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Oh God, the wicked, they have it all. And you know, I've stayed pure. You know that I've stayed holy. You know that I followed your law. I followed your commandments. You know that I'm walking with you. You know that I love you. What a waste of time. All of it in vain. Well, you could say it today. We could say it like this. Why be a Christian when non-Christians are so happy and succeed so much. What good is it? Well, but there's a glimmer of hope already here in the passage for Asaph. In verse 14, he's been stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph is having a miserable time, but notice he's not talking about it. Did you notice that? At least not to others. He's going to tell God. He's wrestling with God, but he's not sharing this struggle to this depth with God's children. There's a war in Asaph's heart. There's a battle in Asaph's, Asaph's heart, but he wouldn't let this war bring God's children down. This is fascinating. He fought with God, but he closed his mouth to protect others. A glimpse of grace at work. We'll see more of that in a bit. But it all continues with an understanding of justice. So we've seen envy. That's the, the first movement, the first point in our text. And then number two, we'll see justice. Number two, justice, beginning in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph couldn't understand what God was doing. He was tired of trying. He was exhausted. He had lost his powers. He had no more energy. There was no rhyme, no reason to what God was doing. Sometimes, often, the bad guys win. And the good guys, well, they normally lose. Now, friends, wouldn't it be great if the bad guys just always lost? It would just be great. It would then make sense. We would know if things go uh, for good, then things would go well. If if someone was bad, then they would explode. Wouldn't that be nice if it was that simple? What if right after a driver drives up right behind you on the highway and they're right up against your bumper, that when they honk their horn in that very moment, all four of their tires explode? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Or when your boss gets angry and yells at you for no reason, what if in that very moment they get food poisoning and have to run out of the room? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Or whenever someone lies to you, their lips just turn black. Justice. Justice would be great, wouldn't it? But that's not the way God works in this life. And actually, we're pretty thankful that's not the way God works in this life because we would be in a heap of trouble ourselves. 
No, we don't understand God's ways. And so injustices continue for us and for Asaph. And it's confusing for him until verse 17. Only then does it become clear. Here's the turning point. Here's the paradigm shift for Asaph. I didn't understand what was, what was happening. Verse 17, until, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Until, a key word here in the text. His reflections on the unrighteous were driving him to despair until, until he took his gaze off the unrighteous and he put his gaze upon God. Do you see that there? And what spurred him on to do it? Well, he went into the sanctuary of God. Now, what is the sanctuary? What's well, the place where God's people gathered? It's where God's word and his law were safely kept. Now, we don't know what happened when he went in. We don't know if there was a sermon being preached. Were there prayers going on? Was there singing? Did another believer say something to Asaph? We don't know. The, the text there, verse 17, it doesn't tell us. It just says that he went into the sanctuary of God. And it's there that he recalled or remembered the truth. Now, church, remember that church is not a building for us today. There's no formal sanctuary. There's no tabernacle. There's no temple. Jesus is our temple. And so the sanctuary is not a building, but it's wherever and whenever God's people gathered together for corporate worship. And so here on Fridays, this place, this ballroom is our sanctuary. This is why we take church attendance and participation so seriously. It's the reason our church covenant says that we as church members will not neglect to gather together. This is because to neglect to gather is to neglect one's spiritual life. Because it's almost always the case that when we as elders come across a believer who's struggling with sin, they've also often stopped gathering with us. The two often go hand in hand. There's a direct correlation. When someone steps out of community, steps out of the Friday gathering, maybe steps out of their community group, maybe steps out of that discipleship relationship. Well, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it very strongly. So I'm going to use his words. And so uh, if you get angry, you can get angry at him instead of me. And so it's convenient for the pastor. Hey, this other guy said these things. And so here's what the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. People who neglect attendance at the house of God are not only being unscriptural, let me put it bluntly, they are fools. My experience in the ministry has taught me that those who are least regular in their attendance are the ones who are most troubled by problems and perplexities. It is a very foolish Christian who does not attend the sanctuary of God as often as he possibly can. We have Asaph, he goes into the sanctuary and he was overwhelmed by God's greatness and his perspective shifts. And he has a 180 degree turn in his heart. This is the turning point of the psalm. Redeemer Church, keep gathering in the sanctuary. Now, certainly there are times of sickness or circumstance that may prevent you from attending, but don't neglect it. One of our elders remarked a few months back that our church not gathering for worship all these months has set us back years as a church, spiritually speaking. Now, at first, I thought that comment was a bit dramatic. I thought it was a bit absurd. But as I've dealt with sin in the church and suffering in the church and cynics in the church and shepherding in the church, I can only agree with my brother and elder that our church is only weaker because we haven't gathered so much over these past 18 months. Because friends, isn't there something wonderful when we gather together? I remember that very first meeting after eight and a half months of not gathering. Oh, how beautiful it was. And every week now, I don't know about you, but there's just a fresh joy and excitement. And so when, when you ask me how I'm doing on Friday morning, no matter how much pain I have in my arms, I'm excited. 
And I mean that. I love being with you. I love being with the people of God. I love being in this sanctuary. What a joy to gather together. There's something wonderful about sitting under the authority of God's word. And last week, many of you came up to Ras Al Khaimah. Oh, what a glorious time that was. To, we, we had multiple buses come up that week. It was the biggest Christian worship gathering we've had in 18 months. Pastor Chris uh, taught from the scriptures, led us in the Lord's Supper, and then we celebrated baptisms. The two ordinances of the church, these two visible pictures of the gospel, the bread and the cup signifying Jesus's life and death. And then we celebrated baptisms. Oh, these four ladies who were baptized, Cheryl and Afia and Reza and Swapna. Oh, their testimonies were glorious. We didn't want that time to end. It was a reminder. It was, it was, a, it was a encouragement to my own soul. I needed that last Friday and I need this today. I need to see you. I need to see your faces, or at least half of them. I need to be with you. I need to hear you sing. I need your encouragement afterwards. I need to hear the preaching. Oftentimes it's not me, and I'm just sitting there with you. I need it. I say, please give me God's word. And even now I'm preaching this to my own heart, even as I preach to you. Fridays are, are, are a reminder that God is good and we are not alone. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 42 is so broken. I love that psalm. It's a psalm that starts as a deer. And in that psalm, it's a temple singer and he is weeping and he is hurting. Why? Because he's away from God's people. He's alone and he yearns to be joined back with God's people. Well, it's here in the sanctuary where Asaph starts to gain his footing slipping a little bit, but now he's, he's gaining his footing. He remembers the truth. The unrighteous don't win. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Judgment. See, when they ice skate, there's no wall for them to grab onto. There's no penguin for them to rent. When they start slipping, perhaps without knowing it, they are on their way to slipping off a cliff to eternal judgment. Well, Asaph had forgotten about the final judgment. He had forgotten about eternity. He was living his life in that moment from an earthly perspective. He was looking down below and not looking up above. Oh, friends, oh, church, can this happen to us? Well, you bet it can. Verse 19, now he sees how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Can you imagine everything you've worked for, everything you've built up, gone in a moment? It reminds me of, of ancient Egypt, right? Where the great pharaohs, the great rulers, they would be buried with the gold. They'd be buried with their gold because they believed that they could take the gold with them to the afterlife. But what happened? Well, the gold is still here. We go find it in the museums. The gold never went with them. When you die, you can take nothing with you. Well, sure, the unrighteous, okay, they're, they're prospering today. But there's a future reckoning coming when everything will be undone in an instant. And Asaph finally gets it. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The wicked are like a dream, which is so real when you're sleeping, but it's gone when you're awake. Now, I don't know what kind of dreams you have, okay? Maybe you have some nice, sweet dreams, but most of my dreams fall into two categories, or at least the, the bad dreams, the, the, the nightmares. Number one, I'm being chased by bad guys, okay? I'm being chased by bad guys, and those dreams are really, really annoying. Or number two, and I get these, I used to get these all the time, I start losing my teeth. My teeth start being wiggly, and then I start losing my teeth. They just start falling out, and it feels so real. Have any of you had either of those kinds of dreams? At least Johan, maybe a few of you. The worst is when you're being chased by the bad guys, and at the same time, your teeth are falling out. I mean, that's just the worst of the worst. But what happens when you wake up? Well, it only takes a second or two to touch your mouth to realize your teeth are there. 
And then a second or two to look around and realize there are no bad guys in the bedroom. In fact, the dream is gone in a flash. You might not even remember it in a few minutes or a few hours. And so are the unrighteous, like phantoms. They're not real. They're forgettable. They're ghosts. They won't last. Gone in a flash. And just like you wake up from a dream, Asaph is waking up to his sin. And we're going to see that in the third point today, hope. So we've seen envy, we've seen justice, and we've seen hope, or we will see this great ending to the psalm filled with hope, starting in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, Asaph was blinded by his envy and he starts to repent. His heart is pierced with conviction. Deep down, he couldn't understand God's sovereignty and how it reconciled with God's goodness and plan. But he starts seeing him. And in verse 22, he says he was ignorant before like a beast. This is like an animal with no awareness of God. But now he's seeing. Now his eyes are open. Now he's looking clearly. He's got 20-20 vision. And in the sanctuary, God is doing the hard work of heart work in him. Oh, Redeemer Church, as you participate on Fridays, pray, oh, pray. Would this be our prayer? Pray that God would change your heart. Pray that he would humble you. Pray that he would rebuke you. Pray that he would convict you, comfort you, encourage you. Whatever he has to do in you, pray for that. You might pray, Lord, help me to see Christ today. I've had a tough week. Help me to see Jesus more clearly. Help me to repent of my sins. You might ask God this as you enter the sanctuary. What are the sins in my life that I don't see? What are the areas in my life that I can grow in? Father, teach me to be a better parent, a better spouse, a better student, a better employee, a better follower of you. Father, teach me through the preaching and the singing and the reading and the praying. Friends, it's in the sanctuary here that Asaph understands that God is with him. He understands the truth. And again, his perspective changes. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You, he's speaking to Yahweh, God, you hold my right hand. Oh, these last verses from verse 23 on to the end of the chapter are some of the most glorious verses in the Psalms. Many of you have these memorized. You've read them before. These are unbelievable verses, unbelievable truths. There, verse 23, God is holding his hand, holding hands. It's a metaphor in scripture for comfort, for God's presence, and for God's loving care. No way you can slip when you have God's grip. He has you. He will hold you fast. He will never let you go. Now, I don't normally hold hands uh, with anyone because of my nerve pain. But on my 19th anniversary last week on Wednesday uh, in the car park, as Gloria and I were going to uh, the restaurant, I hadn't planned this, but just in the spur of the moment in this dark and dirty place, I just grabbed Gloria's hand. Now, it wasn't a romantic scene. Again, we were there in the car park and it lasted all of about 30 seconds. But there was something glorious about it, something wonderful, and it was surprisingly comforting. And then I read this passage, and it clicked. There's a security there. For those 30 seconds or so, I felt safe, and I assume my wife felt safe too. Oh, friends, the Lord is holding on to us. Even in those moments of despair, He won't let us slip. He's going to hold us up. We will not fall. That's the grace of God, friends. That is the grace of God to hold us up. And it's the grace of God who guides us with counsel in verse 24 and afterwards receives us to glory. No, he's, he's moving from an earthly perspective to an eternal perspective right here. Asaph has been transformed from a beast to having a fully developed understanding of salvation by grace alone. Do you see what he says? God will bring him to glory. God will welcome him in. Verse 25, he acknowledges, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Here's the mountaintop of faith. 
this, this isn't a real question for us to answer. It's a rhetorical question. Of course, there's no one else in heaven that we need but God. Of course, there's not. And of course, there's no thing or no one better than God. Not romances, not riches, not retirement, not anything. Oh, friends, as a believer in Christ, heaven awaits. And it's a place with no temptations, no trials, no tribulations. It's a place with no persecution or pain, no natural disasters, no depression, no medicine. There are no pharmacies in heaven, no need, no quarantines, no viruses, no vaccines, and no masks. You won't ever have to wear a mask in heaven, I promise. And Jesus will never wear a mask in heaven. And we will be able to gaze upon his face full of glory and full of beauty forever and ever and ever. That's what heaven is like. Ultimately, heaven is great, not because of something we lose on earth, not because of something we gain in heaven, but it's ultimately great because God is there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is there. And so heaven is great because we get to be with God forever. And so Redeemer Church, we must live in the present now with future grace in mind. We must live now on earth with heaven in mind. We live life backwards, joy today, because we know we know the everlasting joy of tomorrow. Well, like Asaph, apart from the grace of God, we deserve judgment. So as we read the psalm, maybe some of us, we more easily step into the shoes of Asaph. We, we struggle. We envy the unrighteous. Maybe we deal with certain trials here on earth that are hard. Maybe we struggle with the confusion between God's sovereignty and God's goodness on the problem of, of evil and love and how to reconcile those. And, and certainly that is difficult and that is hard. But see, we, we can't forget that we must also on this other side step into the shoes of the unrighteous, of the wicked that Asaph is talking about. Because see, friends, without Jesus Christ as our Savior, those are our shoes. We are the wicked. We are the unrighteous. We are those who are skating off that cliff and going to everlasting judgment if someone doesn't catch us first. Oh, friends, we all need that. And hundreds of years after Asaph, that one I just mentioned, Jesus would come fully God and fully man. He'd live a perfect life and he would go to the cross and he would take our death, our judgment and our sin because every one of us are like those unrighteous. We've all sinned against the holy God. We've all wanted to live our own lives, our own way. We're more like those unrighteous than we'd like to think. We are them apart from God. But see, Jesus, he marched to the cross willingly. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And he rose from the dead on the third day. He rose from the dead. Oh, would that truth never get old? He's alive. He's alive. And he's paid the penalty for our sins, for those who would believe in him. And so, friend, I ask you today, I urge you today, as you hear this message, have you believed? Have you repented of your sin and have you believed in Jesus to save you? He's the one who will receive us into heaven, not because of something we've done, but because of what he's done. Well, this is important because our sin deserves justice and all of us will die. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 26, this is my new verse. My flesh is failing. The last surgery doesn't seem to work. I'm in so much pain. I've had too many surgeries and procedures. But see, my hope, our hope is not in medicine. It's not in another doctor. It's not in a church building. Our hope is in God, who is our strength and our portion forever. Ultimately, all of our hearts and flesh will fail unless Jesus comes back first. All of us, not just me, not just those in chronic pain. This verse here is pointing to death. And unless Jesus comes back, we're going to face death. And so the word portion here is quite meaningful if you read this and stop there. See, Asaph was from the tribe of Levi. 
Remember, in your Old Testament, if you have read it, that there are 12 tribes, and each of the tribes, they get a piece of the, the promised land. They get a land for themselves. There was one tribe, though, who did not get a portion of the land. Instead, they served as priests for the entire land and didn't get ownership over any property. And so it's amazing when Numbers chapter 18 says that for the Levites, their portion is the Lord. And so that's what Asaph is saying here. Asaph is saying, I don't need land. I don't need prosperity. I don't need health. I don't need anything except God. Isn't that beautiful? That's what he's saying when he says, the Lord is my portion. Well, verse 27, once and for all, all those who are far from God will perish. Death is the great equalizer. All die, and those apart from God, the unrighteous will suffer everlasting judgment. So now Asaph, he, he, his, his vision is so clear that he thinks to himself, oh, why was I envying the unrighteous? There's nothing to envy in them because they're going to die apart from God's saving grace. And the truth moves the psalmist to compassion. Verse 15, he kept his thoughts to himself. He was silent, but now, but now, verse 28, he can't help but proclaim, it's good to be near God. He's my refuge. And I love the last line of the psalm. Just look at that. The very last line after the comma, the last, what is that? Last eight words. After everything he's been through, after all the suffering, after all the envy, after his own sin that he's poured out, after his repentance, here's how he ends the psalm. He says that I may tell of your works. He's overflowing with joy. There's this paradigm shift in Asaph's heart. And I love it how two weeks ago from the same pulpit, Pastor Benoit, our church planter to Cochin, he taught us and preached the Great Commission. Jesus' words to us to go and make disciples of all nations. And I love it how today, two weeks later, our second week at the Crown Plaza, look at how the text ends. Look at how it ends. Asaph says that I may tell of all of your works. See, being in the sanctuary, being with the people of God, having his paradigm shift, having his mind and heart melted by the truths of God, leaves him from a change from a complaining man to a commissioned man. He ends his complaining with the commission. Asaph is pursuing the great commission before there was a great commission. He came in complaining and he leaves commission. Oh, he understood that there is nothing on heaven, nothing on earth better than God. Oh, Redeemer Church, let us leave this sanctuary today in the same way. How can we not now, with this truth, how can we not now go and tell the world about this God? Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is so exciting. Your word is so exciting. I feel like I could preach for hours. Maybe I did. Father, this is thrilling. These truths in Psalm 73, oh Lord, would we be like Asaph? Would we wake up from our slumber? Would we wake up from our sin? Oh Father, would we see that you are there with us, that you are holding our hand, that you are our refuge? Oh Lord, would you be our portion forever? Would we know that? Would you be all that we need? Would you be our all in all? Would we look at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And would you fulfill our hearts? And would we look at our Savior Jesus and know that he is better than anything this world has to offer? And would we leave the sanctuary telling of those works to everyone? Father, thank you for the work. Thank you for your word and your work in our hearts today. Bless us now as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.